Romans chapter 3 this morning. I want to say just by way of preface that every, every time I go to divide this book up, I feel like I'm taking too much and not giving you enough of the, uh, the trees, as it were. And so I want to encourage you, as we are working through Romans, I know that there are some in this church that are working on memorizing portions of Romans, but I just want to be encouraging you to be reading it and to be thinking through maybe those details that I don't touch on. There's, there's, a, lot, there's a lot in Romans. It's, it's incredibly rich. And this morning we're looking at Romans 3, 1 through 20. And I know if you have a copy of Scripture, you're going to find it helpful to have that open this morning. We are right in that section, that introductory section of Romans, where Paul is setting out the plight of man. Um, Martin Lloyd-Jones, I want to recommend one book to you. It was the first book that he ever wrote and published, and it's called The Plight of Man and the Power of God. And it's a reflection on Romans 1 through 3, the plight of man. What What is man's condition by nature? What are we by nature? And you'll remember, if you've been here, back in chapter 1, he talked about what Gentiles look like by nature and all of their rebellion and lawlessness. And then in chapter 2, he turns to his Jewish hearers and he says, in in case you think you're better than the Gentiles, let me tell you, you're not. And you're living in legalism, and that's powerless. And neither Gentile nor Jew has a right standing before God. By nature. Now, Paul is going to bring this home in full force here in chapter 3, verses 1 through 20 this morning. And then, as we'll see next Lord's Day, and I just want to point out to you that verses 21 to 26 of this chapter have been called the Mount Everest of the Bible. It is the solution. The plight of man, chapter 118 to 320, and the solution, the righteousness of Christ, verses 21 to 26 of this chapter. But this morning we're looking at Romans 3, 1 through 20, and here now Paul says, what advantage then has the Jew? Or what is the value of circumcision? Much in every way. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. But if some were unfaithful, does their faithfulness nullify the faithfulness of God? By no means, let God be true, though everyone were a liar, as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. But if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say, that God is unjust or unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? I speak in a human way, by no means. For then how could God judge the world? But if through my lie, God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? And why not do evil that good may come? As some people slanderously charge us with saying, their condemnation is just. What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. 
Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. The way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of God endures forever. C.S. Lewis has a very interesting collection of essays. The book goes by the title, God in the Dock. And almost toward the end of that book of essays is Lewis's short essay, also titled God in the Dock. And Lewis is reflecting right around the time of World War II about the prevailing unbelief that was ever increasing in the United Kingdom. We're seeing that now lagging behind in the U.S., but there at the the middle of the 20th century, the U.K. was throwing off the restraints of the influence of Christianity and Scripture. And uh, Lewis, as he reflects on what's happening in his culture at that time, in that essay says this. He says, modern man is the judge. God is in the dock. He is quite a kindly judge. If God should have a reasonable defense for being a God who permits war, poverty, and disease, he is ready to listen to it. The trial may even end in God's acquittal, but the important thing is that man is on the bench and God is in the dock. Now, if I could transport myself back in time, C.S. Lewis wouldn't care what I thought, but I would tell him this is not unique to modern man. This is unique to all mankind since the fall. All men since the fall have wanted to put God on trial and put themselves as the judges. And the Apostle Paul understands that as he writes this letter to the church in Rome, as he writes it to the believers in Rome, he wants them to understand that the problem of his contemporary Jewish nation, his his people group, is the same problem that Lewis was talking about. The Jews had all of these religious privileges. They had the law of God. They had the worship of God. They had the covenants. They had the adoption. They were set apart from all the other nations of the world. And they thought that they were righteous. And when Paul came and told them they weren't righteous, they wanted to put God in the dock and themselves on the stand as the judge. And what the Apostle Paul is doing in this section, it's fascinating. He is essentially holding a trial, using the objections of his Jewish counterparts to explain how it is all mankind who's in the dock, and it's God who is the judge. And that what all men do by nature only verifies the righteousness of God, even the unrighteousness that we practice, shows that God is just and righteous, and that there is no one who can open their mouth before such an infinitely holy God. Now, I want us to consider in this, as it were, mock trial, um, three things this morning. I want us to consider the defense 
And then I want us to consider the prosecution and then the verdict. I know I've been watching too much Murdoch, so that's probably going to bleed out here. The defense, the prosecution, and the verdict. And, and Paul opens this really uh, with a, a, a hypothetical objection from the Jewish people. Remember, back in chapter 2, he turned his attention to the Jewish people and he said, look, you're judging people over here. You're saying, that's right, they're doing evil. We're not like them. We're, we're not like those people. We, we have the law. We do what's right. And Paul says, here's the problem. No one does what's right. That you who say you shouldn't commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who sh- say you shouldn't steal, do you rob temples? And, and Paul is trying to help them understand that lawlessness is every bit as unrighteous as, I'm sorry, legalism is every bit as unrighteous as lawlessness. They're the same, they're two sides of the same coin. Legalism is lawlessness. Lawlessness will result in legalism. Both, both end up um, discriminated before the throne of God and, and judged to be unrighteous. Notice that Paul now, as he is bringing this accusation against the Jews, he has said at the end of chapter 2 that the Jews who trusted in their circumcision, who trusted in the fact that they had the Mosaic Law, he, he says that their physical circumcision means nothing if they don't have their hearts circumcised. So if we don't have regenerate hearts, external rituals don't do anything for us to make us right before God. We saw that last week. Notice, though, the objection that Paul raises as the defense of the Jews is held forth. And notice he asks a series of questions there in verse 1. He says, what advantage then has the Jew? Because you could see his Jewish listeners saying, well, Paul, if you're telling us that our circumcision means nothing, that all the privileges God gave us means nothing, that our being in the visible church means nothing, if you're telling us that that means nothing then you're saying that God didn't do anything special for us. And Paul very clearly tackles this as they raise that defense. Notice they say, what is then the value of circumcision? And Paul doesn't say, and you've got to listen very carefully, Paul doesn't say circumcision doesn't mean anything. Now, we could transport that to the new covenant. We could just as easily say baptism means nothing if you don't have a baptized heart. But that doesn't mean that baptism means nothing absolutely. Baptism, even for the unregenerate person, still means they are marked off and part of the visible church. Notice what Paul says here. It's very important that you get this. He says, what was the value of circumcision? Much in every way. He says, to begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. God gave his written word to one people in the Old Covenant. And every member of the Old Covenant Church, Old Covenant Israel, they had the greatest privilege on the face of the earth because they had the written revelation of God. None of the other nations had it. And what Paul's saying is their circumcision didn't mean nothing because they were being nurtured under the ministry of God's word. Now, we're going to see that they rejected it. And we're going to see the cost of that rejection I do want to point out that if you skip over to Romans chapter 9, verses 1 through 4, Paul will develop what he starts to say here in chapter 3, verses 1 and 2. 
And over in chapter 9, verses 1 and 4, Paul will speak about the Jewish people and his burden to see them converted. And he'll say, you know, to them God gave the adoption, the covenants, the worship of God. He gave them these external privileges. They were a, they were a richly blessed people because God was giving them the things that should have led them to Christ. And then he'll say at the end of uh, that section in chapter 9, verses 1 through 5, he'll say, uh, ultimately, it was to them that Christ came in the flesh, who is God over all. So it doesn't mean that there was no difference between Jews and Gentiles. There was a difference. God did make a difference, and God did give them those things that should have led them to faith in Christ. But notice what Paul does now. He moves from the much in every way. Notice the second question in verse 3. What if some were unfaithful? Does their faithfulness nullify the faithfulness of God? Now, it's very interesting here. If you look at the history of Israel in the Old Covenant, one thing is clear, and that is that the majority of Israelites did not believe the gospel. This is very sobering. They were all part of the visible church. Generation after generation after generation after generation after generation rejected the gospel. And Paul understands that. But Paul is trying to win people to Christ. And so he doesn't go in on full blast and say, why did all of them just about reject the gospel? Why were all of them unrighteous and unfaithful? Notice what he says. He says, what if some were unfaithful? You see, Paul is trying to gain a hearing with unbelieving Jews. He'll pick back up on this, as I said, in chapter 9. And yet, notice, he asks that question, does their faithfulness nullify the faithfulness of God? Now, here's the objection. The defense attorney, the Jewish def defense attorney, is fundamentally coming forward and saying, look, Paul, you tell us that God promised all these great promises in the covenants that he gave Abraham and David all through the Old Testament. You're saying he promised to redeem a people. You're saying he promised to forgive the sins of his people. You're saying he promised to be a God to his people and to make them his people. But now you're telling us that, that the Jews who had the law and all of those things, they didn't trust in him. They, they weren't led to faith in Christ. Does that mean that God is unfaithful? Because you're telling us that God promised. And now you're telling us that we haven't attained to it. And so I'm going to say it's God's fault. You see what Paul's doing here? Paul's taking up their argument. And, and he's saying, let me explain to you how this works. And so as he counters this defense, notice what he says in verse 4. And this is where it gets really tricky. You've got to look very carefully. Verse 4, by no means let God be true, though everyone were a liar, as it is written, and here he quotes David out of one of his psalms of repentance, where David says that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. Now that's out of Psalm 51. And if you went back and you looked at that in context, you'd find that the verse right before that says, against you and you only have I sinned. David was confessing his sin of taking Bathsheba and killing Uriah. And he says to God, against you and you only have I sinned. And then he says that you may be just when you speak 
and prevail when you are judged. What is David saying? David is saying that his sin with Bathsheba and Uriah, even though it was ungodly, unrighteous, and unfaithful, nevertheless, it happened so that God's righteousness could be vindicated. Um, the best way I can explain this to you is if there were no sin, we wouldn't understand God's righteous response to evil. If there were no sin in the world, we wouldn't understand how God is righteous as a judge. Sin, if I can say this reverently, because God doesn't need anything, he doesn't need us, but, but from our perspective, if there were no sin, there would not be a demonstration of the righteous judgment of God. And so David is saying here, against you and you only I have sinned, that you may be right when you speak and just and prevail when you judge. That means on judgment day, none of us will be able to say, ah, you, didn't, you, you weren't faithful, you told me you, you made promises. Um, David understands that he can't make any defense before God. That's why Paul's reaching back to Psalm 51. He's, he's taking away any objection by appealing to David, who the Jews should have been listening to, inspired by the Holy Spirit. Now, it's also very interesting, isn't it, that when Paul talks about the value of circumcision, the value of being a Jew, and he says much in every way, the one thing he appealed to was the word of God, the oracles of God. Um, that was the chief thing they should have been listening to. And Paul's going to do something really fascinating here. He's going to go back to the Old Testament throughout this section, and he's going to string together verse after verse after verse after verse out of the Psalms that the Jewish people should have known because they were entrusted to them. And he's going to teach them out of the Old Testament everything that he is talking about so that they will recognize this was taught in the Old Testament scriptures. Listen to this. Um, John Murray, late professor at Westminster Seminary, says this. Paul charges the unbelieving Jews with the rejection of those very oracles on which they had prided themselves. Think about that. Paul is essentially saying you have rejected the clear teaching of those things about which you prided yourself. Murray says this indicates the apostles' estimate of the relation that the rejection of the gospel sustained to the Old Testament as it was focused in the Messianic promises. Basically, Murray's saying all of the Old Testament was pointing to Christ. All of it was showing people their need for Christ. And the Jews who prided themselves on having the scriptures didn't listen to the scriptures. Now, there's a warning there for us. We can talk about loving the Bible. We can talk about our belief in the inerrancy of scripture. We can even quote scripture and not be believing scripture. Um, Isaiah, the foremost Old Testament prophet, right before he begins that great section in Isaiah 53 about the suffering servant, he opens that section in verse one by saying, who has believed our report and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? And the answer is not many. It's a rhetorical question. The answer is not many. They heard. They had all the promises. They had the same scriptures we have in the Old Testament. They had the same gospel embedded in it. And Paul says they did not believe. Now, 
we've kind of touched on their use of David there in Psalm 51. And Paul kind of brings his answer to the defense to a close there at the end of verse 5 when he says, um, what shall we say, that God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? And, And see here, what Paul is saying is that there were some who were saying, well, Paul, if our sin magnifies God's righteousness, then God's wrong to inflict punishment on us because even when we do wrong, we're making God look good. Don't miss that. I told you it was tricky. He's saying our sin magnifies his righteousness. So if my evil makes God look great in his righteousness, isn't he wrong then to pour his wrath out on me? And Paul says, by no means, or God forbid, it's sometimes translated. And then he says, how then could could God judge the world? That might be the summary statement of this section. How then could God judge the world? You see, to this point, the Jewish people had put God in the dock and themselves as the judge. And Paul is removing them and putting them in the dock and putting God as the judge, taking away any objection they might have. Now, you know what's fascinating about this? And I've never seen this before I prepared for this sermon this morning. There is... There is a theme running through this section, and it all has to do with the tongue. It all has to do with what people say. Well, I don't think it's fair that God's like that. I, don't, I wouldn't trust a God like that. I mean, we've heard this a thousand times. I've heard it from people in churches. I don't think God's really like that. Um, and, and what Paul is going to do here at the end of this section, when he brings the verdict, he's going to say... What God does is he shuts everybody's mouth on Judgment Day so that you will not be able to open your mouth on Judgment Day and say a single thing, no matter what we do in the here and now. Notice that Paul now brings this prosecution to bear, and he does so there in verses 10 through 18 particularly. He says, are we Jews any better off? Not at all. Notice now Paul puts himself there, we Jews. He changes the pronoun. He he includes himself among the Jewish people. He says, are we Jews better than others? And he says, not at all. We've already charged back in chapters 1 and 2, all. Jew and Gentile, Jew and Greek, all are under sin. There is none righteous, no, not one. Now, if you were to do a study of verses 10 through 18 you would find that all Paul is doing here is stringing together one verse after another out of the Psalms. He appeals to Psalm 14.1, there is none righteous, no, not one. He's appealing to Psalm 53.1, there is none righteous, no, not one. I think it's interesting God puts that verse twice in this altar. 14, Psalm 14, Psalm 53.1, there are none righteous, no, not one. Notice that Paul is trying to press home the plight of man. What is man like by nature? I'm not sure that a week goes by in my life that I don't hear someone somewhere on television or somewhere else saying, well, I essentially believe in the goodness of people. Well, I don't. I don't. 
You know, my dad very wisely used to say to me when I was a boy, Nick, the person I trust least of all in this world is myself. That's, that's the confession of someone who has come to terms with what we are by nature. By the way, if you believe in the essential goodness of all people by nature, why do you carry around a pocket full of keys? Um, if you think that there's only a few bad people, why are there 20,000 true crime documentaries I'm obsessed with? And the other day, I was like, man, a lot of people murder people. It hit me. Murder is really prevalent. Paul is actually going to talk about why we do the things we do. Notice, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. But wait, isn't there a little loophole for me? Nope, no one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. I don't need to know anything about you to know that by nature, you have never sought God. By nature. According to your sin nature, fallen in Adam, none of us, by nature, have ever sought God. None of us have woken up one day and said, I'm going to seek God today. Um, Because by nature, no one understands. No one seeks God. Notice this, Paul says, all have turned aside. He's using... He's he's using these universal scope verses out of the Psalter. No one, all have turned aside. Remember, Isaiah said, all we like sheep have gone astray. Everyone to his own way. Everyone. I said last week, I'm going to reiterate this. Some of us were outwardly rebellious. Others were inwardly rebellious. Um... Some were lawless like the Gentiles. Others were legalistic like the Jews. All of it is rebellion. All of it is turning aside from God. All of it, notice this verse 12, together they have become worthless. Let me say this this morning. Whoever you are, you have intrinsic value because you're made in the image of God. But anytime someone tells you you're worth it without telling you you're worthless by nature and need Christ, you should run as far away from them as possible because they are lying to you. You have intrinsic value as an image bearer, but by nature, spiritually, Paul says that all together, collectively, have become worthless. Notice he says no one does good, not even one. Now, in this prosecution, Paul is going to now move to use an illustration of the whole of our person and our faculties. And remember, I already told you that there's this theme about what we do with our mouths. And notice what Paul says in verse 13. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. You'll remember when Isaiah, the prophet, had that vision of God in Isaiah 6, and and he's caught up into the throne room in heaven, and he sees the Lord high and lifted up. He sees Christ sitting on the throne, and and the, the train of his robe fills the temple, and he hears the angels and the archangels crying out, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And what is Isaiah's response? He isn't like, that's right, God's holy. No, he says, woe is me. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. Now what's so fascinating about that is that Isaiah recognizes that the very place where God had gifted him to minister God's word to others was by nature unclean and unrighteous. 
And he needed the Lord to take a coal from the altar that points to the blood of Jesus to cleanse his mouth and his lips. Now, if Isaiah understood that, if David understood that, if Paul understood that, we should all come to a place of understanding this. Now, I am often convicted, and I'll make a confession this morning, I am often convicted when I read places like that section on the tongue in James chapter 2. And remember what James says, that the tongue is a world, a world of iniquity. The tongue, smallest member. Ship is turned by a little rudder. The tongue sets hell on fire, James says. He says, with it, we bless God, and with it, we curse men who are made in the image of God. James is saying the same thing Paul's saying here. Paul's saying, look, by nature, we use our tongues, our mouths to deceive, to lie, to pull others down, to tear others down, to speak trash about others because it makes us feel better in our self-righteousness. Because when I want to feel better about myself, I'll fixate on things I don't like about others, tearing them down and unjustly speaking to and about them. And Paul says, listen, if we're going to get this, we have to understand it's not just what we do with our bodies. It's not just what we feel in our hearts. It's, it's how we use our tongues that reveals what we are by nature. And then notice he moves on and he says their feet are swift to shed blood and their paths are ruin and misery. The way of peace they have not known. And then he summarizes it here. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now, Paul is essentially saying, and I'm going to quote um, I want to quote Sinclair Ferguson in just a second here, but Paul's essentially saying that instead of men and women and boys and girls being terrified of what they are by nature and who God is by nature, the contrast between it, instead of that, they, they have no fear of God. They continue to use their tongues and their feet and all of their members for unrighteousness. And, and Paul is saying that ultimately that is the condition of every single individual on this planet. By the way, I want to say this this morning. Um, some of us had radical conversions. Others did not. Um, if you have been redeemed out of this condition whether you were radically, openly rebellious or silently rebellious, that's a miracle. That's a miracle. That's the miracle of grace. God redeems people out of this condition. And let me say this this morning. How marvelous that even though this is the prosecution against us and what we are, God is intent on saving people out of this condition. That's, that's marvelous. He's not just trying to make you feel bad about yourself. You should feel bad. Because we're sinners. We should feel bad. Feeling bad about our sin is not a bad thing if it drives us to Christ. There's a lot of people trying to cast off their guilt and shame without going to Christ. But the good news is God brings this indictment so that we would realize he wants to bring us out of that condition by nature. That's how great and glorious and gracious our God is. Now, uh, there's a sense in which Paul has brought all the evidence against the Jewish people. He is focused on the way in which they raise these objections and they 
use their tongues to try to dismiss their sin before God. And I do want to read this to you this morning. Sinclair Ferguson kind of sums this up by saying, the uncontrollability of the human tongue is an indication of the uncontrollability of the human heart. The uncontrollability of the human tongue is an indication of the uncontrollability of the sinful human heart. Men and women speak and act in the presence of God and do not tremble. All men are arguing for their own righteousness in the sight of God. Now, as we look at the verdict here, just briefly in verses 19 and 20, I want to remind you that Paul is addressing those old covenant Jewish people who had received the law of Moses. They were trusting in the law. They were trying to establish their own righteousness by the law. And Paul now is going to defend the law in this verdict. And and he's going to say to them, the law of God has a very distinct purpose. There There is one very big reason why God gave his law. And it was not for you to try to establish your own righteousness. Notice what Paul says in verse 19. We know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world become guilty before God. So God gave those 613 commandments built on the 10 commandments to stop everyone's mouth from trying to make a justification of something they think they have in themselves before him for judgment day. So that when I read the law of God, I ought not think I'm better than other people, nor ought I first and foremost to think this is the way I ought to live and I'm going to try really hard. We're first to have our mouths shut. That's what Paul says. God gave the law that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world be found guilty before God. Um, Notice he summarizes this verdict in verse 20. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. Now, I have told you recently that the most terrifying thought to me personally is to stand before God on judgment day and not to have Christ as a sufficient sacrifice and as the righteousness that I need. Um, that, that, that ought to be the most terrifying th- thought for any human being. The second we breathe our last, we're going to be face to face with the infinitely holy God. And Paul says, on that day, on judgment day, every mouth is going to be shut There's not going to be anyone that says, Lord, you didn't give me enough evidence. There's not going to be anyone who's going to be able to say, Lord, that wasn't fair. In fact, Jesus will say, there are those who think they're trusting in their works and they want to say to God on that day, Lord, didn't we do this in your name? Didn't we do that in your name? You see the propensity of men to want to open their mouths before God, and yet this is marvelous. There is only one person who could have opened his mouth before God. And when he was led to judgment for our sin, Mark tells us he was silent. This is awesome. I've already mentioned Isaiah 53. And you'll remember there in Isaiah 53, where the suffering servant is going to be wounded for our transgressions, where he's going to be bruised for our iniquities. 
Isaiah says he was like a lamb before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. Now why, why did Jesus remain silent when he was judged in a human court when he began his sufferings for us? And what I'm going to tell you this morning is marvelous. Jesus was silent when he was judged so that we can open our mouths and praise God for him on judgment day. And that our mouths trying to establish our own righteousness will forever be shut. And that we will only ever open them to praise God for who the Lord Jesus is. Listen to this. I'm going to read you this quote from Ferguson. This is marvelous. He says, Paul wants to bring us to silence before God's judgment now in order that before God's judgment then we may be able to open our mouths and say the one word in all the universe that is acceptable in his sight and makes us acceptable in his sight. Ferguson says the only one in all human history who had the right to speak in the presence of God's judgment and call him father came into the world to take our place to bear our sin silently like a lamb brought to the slaughter as a sheep before her shears is dumb, Isaiah said, he went to judgment. He did not open his mouth. And as in his need upon the cross he hung, feeling the weight of God's judgment on the sins of those for whom he died, he opened his mouth to say the only thing that sinners can say, my God, why have you forsaken me? He died in silence, bearing our sin, that we might go in triumph and speak his name. Um, I, I am not sure there's a more important message that I could proclaim to you than this. That's it. His mouth was shut in judgment so that ours can be opened to praise God for what he's done for us in Christ. Now, I don't know where you are this morning. I know that many of you have come to the place where you've had your mouth shut over an attempt to establish your own righteousness. Others in here probably have not. Um, But regardless, Paul throws this prosecution over the whole of humanity. He says there's, there's no one that doesn't fall under this just sentencing of God. And yet, I'm going to remind you this morning, he does this so that you would come to know the Lord Jesus. So that when I come to terms with the fact that I've used my tongue to do awful things toward others, when I have run with my feet to iniquity, when I come to terms with the fact that I am altogether evil and corrupt by nature, that instead of trying to cast off the guilt and shame of that and be like, that doesn't make me feel good, I instead realize that God has given his law to crush me so that I will flee to the only one who was good and righteous, who took my place, who bore the wrath I deserve, who suffered under the just judgment of God, and who, this is marvelous, who is the very judge who is going to say to those who try to open their mouth in judgment, depart from me, I never knew you, but is going to say to everyone for whom he died, well done, good and faithful servant. That's that's remarkable. The judge becomes the savior in Jesus. And he puts himself in the dock where you belong. 
and he falls under his own righteous judgment poured out by his father so that he can stand as the judge on judgment day and say, well done, good and faithful servant. That's astonishing. That's the gospel. Let him who has ears to hear, let him hear this morning what the Spirit says to the church. Let me pray for us. Father in heaven, we do acknowledge our sinfulness before you. We acknowledge that we have all gone astray like lost sheep. We acknowledge that there are none righteous among us, no, not one. We acknowledge, Lord, that none of us have done good. None of us have sought you by nature. Our God, we pray that you would forgive us and have mercy on us. We thank you and praise you that you have sent your Son to be the solution to our unjust and ungodly plight. We do pray, our God, that you would cause by your grace, you would cause us to listen to your law, that our mouths may be stopped, that you would cause us to lis listen to your oracles in which Christ is revealed. Our God, we pray that you would cause us now to fall under your judgment so that we would not on that great day of judgment. Lord Jesus, we thank you and praise you that you stood in our place. We thank you that your mouth was shut, that ours might be open. We pray that you would have mercy on us. We pray that every single individual here this morning would come to know you and to grow in you, to mature in you. We pray that you would be purifying our lips. You would be helping us off of our self-righteousness and our lawlessness. We do pray that we would know you not only as the judge, but as the Savior. Lord Jesus, we pray that you would accomplish these things in us for our good and your glory. We pray these things in your name. Amen.